I am a work in progress and so is everyone else. We can't make informed decisions without access to accurate or easily understandable information. Join me, Erin Michelle, as I explain how all the stuff going on in the world actually affects your day-to-day life and why you should care. I'll be breaking down the news in the simplest of terms so you can get informed, speak up, and speak out. Welcome to my show. Each week, I will attempt to drop a new episode and I will discuss legal or political news, current events, or an absolutely crazy ass story that I saw on the news. It's hotter than hell already, and I imagine that my utility bill will be scary. And if it's this hot in the middle of May, then I can only imagine what July and August will be like. I would love to spend my days inside and enjoying the air conditioning, but I have a lot of work travel this summer, and that means I'm going to be out in this heat with my natural hair. Honestly, I do not know how long this natural hair stage is going to last. I was in Illinois last week, and I literally watched my hair getting bigger and bigger and bigger due to the humidity. Seriously. I was standing still and watching my shadow grow because my hair was getting frizzier and frizzier. But enough about me. What's going on with you? Have you been watching the news? Avoiding the news? Does it all seem overwhelming? There's been a lot going on the last few weeks, so let's get started. Elon Musk and his Twitter bot was in the news. Of course, he also said that he would welcome back Donald Trump to Twitter. I think Trump returning to Twitter would remind people why they voted for the other dude. Honestly. And if he returns to Twitter, then that gives the DNC a bad guy to run against. And honestly, it's not surprising that Elon Musk wants Trump to return to Twitter. Trump would bring the crazies back to Twitter. You know, the racist deal holes that have been kicked off the last few years. Trump has said that he won't return to Twitter, but we all know that's a lie. He's not using his own social media site I can't even remember the name of it. What is it like? Social Truth or True Social or something like that. He also hasn't been using any of the other crazy right-wing social media apps that have popped up in the last few years. Because let's be clear, those apps have lower usage because the users on the right like to argue with the other side and they don't find it fun to talk about issues with similarly crazy-minded people. Um, They want to own the libs. And Trump's lawsuit against Twitter, remember how he filed the lawsuit uh, last year that was originally filed in Florida because Florida passed that law to stop social media companies from banning crazy people from saying crazy shit um, like Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, that case with Twitter was removed from the Florida courts and sent to California, which is the proper venue. And the judge out there in Cali was not impressed by the crazy-ass filing that attempted to argue that Twitter was acting as a government agent due to alleged pressure from congressional Democrats. And I'm rolling my eyes um, because Twitter is not a government agency and the First Amendment doesn't apply like we've spoken about before and we will bring up again because the judge explicitly stated, Twitter is a private company. And the First Amendment applies only to governmental abridgments of speech 
and not to allege abridgments by private companies. There were a couple of other issues that were before the court, but we're only talking about this First Amendment Twitter thing today. And the federal judge did leave the door open for Trump and other plaintiffs, because there were other plaintiffs in the lawsuit against Twitter, to file an amended complaint against Twitter. And it has to be consistent with his written decision um, in order to save the lawsuit. But you have to stop and think about one of the statements from the judge. He says, Overall, the amended complaint does not plausibly allege that Twitter acted as a government entity when it closed plaintiff's accounts. In other words, they ass out. So back to Elon Musk. Elon said that the Twitter deal is temporarily on hold, pending details supporting calculation that spam and fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. But he didn't say why those fake spam accounts have affected his decision to put the deal on hold. According to CNBC, Musk and Twitter agreed to a so-called reverse termination fee of $1 billion when the two sides reached a deal last month. Still, the breakup fee isn't an option payment that allows Musk to bail without consequences. A reverse breakup fee paid from a buyer to a target applies when there's an outside reason a deal can't close such as, say, regulatory intermediation or third-party financing concerns. A buyer can also walk if there's fraud, assuming the discovery of incorrect information has a so-called material adverse effect. So if Musk were to simply abandon his bid because he felt he overpaid, Twitter could sue him for billions of dollars in damages in addition to collecting the $1 billion fee. So all these different financial talking heads, they have different theories as to why um, Musk has brought up this thing about the spam accounts. Some think this is his way to weasel out of the deal because Tesla shares have fallen and this will keep him from having to pay the $1 billion deal breakup fee. Others think this is his way of coming back with a lower price to buy Twitter because Twitter shares are down 23% from the agreed-upon purchase price of $54.20. Also, shares of Tesla are down about 24% over the last month. And some people believe if Musk believes his Tesla losses are related to his Twitter acquisition and are significant enough to potentially outweigh both the $1 billion termination fee and any additional damages he would be charged in court if he loses. So, he might just back out and this is his way to get out of it. But I'm not sure. So, cause I'm not a financial talking head, but anyway, Twitter is also having problems as the CEO has let go of a couple of executives and employees are really not happy about Musk plan takeover. So things are kind of crazy at Twitter right now. So, Oh, and other news, be prepared for the price of vegetable oil to increase. It's one of the casualties of the war in Ukraine because Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. Like I said in my first episode, Russia and Ukraine produce a quarter of the world's wheat and over half of the world's sunflowers. And allegedly, Russia is harvesting Ukrainian wheat and taking it back to Russia. I say allegedly, but we all know it's true. It kind of reminds me of Donald Trump saying he wanted to take all of Iraq's oil. So yeah, Putin's taking all of Ukraine's wheat. They're both jackasses. Anyway, vegetable oil like gasoline are going to be sky high for a little bit. 
And yes, the price of gasoline is going back up. Why, you ask? Because the summer travel season is upon us. Inflation? And then Russia has cut off natural gas exports to countries like Poland in retaliation for settling and helping Ukrainians. And Russia is the fuel provider for most of Europe, and they are punishing countries that are against them. So like Poland, who had their gas cut off. Oh, Russia also threatened Finland this week. Finland has said that they are preparing to join NATO. NATO, And let's be clear, that pissed off Russia to no end. Finland and Sweden, because Sweden has indicated the same as well. They both have histories of having been invaded by Mother Russia because Russia invaded a lot of its neighbors back in the day. This is a common thing. How do you think the czar paid for all those fancy-ass buildings and all those Fabergé eggs when their people were still serfs? Anyway, Finland is afraid that they'll be invaded and treated like Ukraine. Russia said if Finland joined NATO, then they would have to retaliate and protect themselves. Putin has repeatedly claimed that one of the reasons he launched his war on Ukraine is because of the eastward expansion of NATO. Russia has warned that they would respond with unspecified military technical measures against uh, Finland. And they have also said that NATO is very unfriendly to Russia, but no one there has really explained how. And I have all sorts of questions. But apparently this means that Finland and Sweden have aligned themselves with the enemy. And Putin had a meeting with his Security Council to discuss Finland and Sweden joining NATO. So that means we should get another video of him sitting by himself at the end of the table and about 40 feet away from the rest of the people in the room. God, he's a crazy bastard. So let me break this down for you. NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it is a military alliance. NATO has existed since the end of World War II, and it was a response to the Cold War threat imposed by the Soviet Union. Even though the Soviet Union is gone now, NATO still exists. And NATO is a relationship, an alliance between 30 European countries and the United States and Canada. And yes, I did say European countries. Because Turkey, like Russia, is unique in that it sits in Europe and Asia. Now, why does NATO matter? Because Article 5 of the NATO alliance states that if an armed attack occurs against one of the member states, it shall be considered an attack against all members, and other members shall assist the attacked member with armed forces if if necessary. Article 5 has only been invoked one time in NATO's history by the United States after the September 11 attacks in 2001. The invocation was confirmed on October 4, 2001, when NATO determined that the attacks were indeed eligible under the terms of the North Atlantic Treaty. It also still stands despite everything Donald Trump and Putin did to try and destroy NATO. And Because Trump would falsely claim that NATO members were getting over on the U.S. and the U.S. was being stuck paying for everything and they owed us. That's bullshit because all the countries contribute to the organization itself. Now, what he was referring to and incorrectly stating that they owed us, each country is supposed to spend at least 2% of their GDP on their military and defense. The U.S. spends 3.4% of our GDP on our military, and 38% of the total military worldwide spending 
comes from the U.S. That's a failing on the U.S. government and not the world as we run around acting like we're Captain Sabaho trying to save everybody. Now, don't get me wrong. I have no problem with the U.S. assisting Ukraine. However, I wish that we would spend some of that money on providing better mental assistance for those currently serving in the military As well as for veterans, we should improve services for the VA hospitals and offer more transition assistance to people leaving the military and returning to civilian life. But that's an entirely different discussion. And I'm really sorry. I can't break down the Bitcoin currency collapse because I still don't understand what the hell Bitcoin is exactly. I had a few people try to explain to me on my um, personal Facebook page, but It helps, but I'm still not there. I'm still having issues with cryptocurrency and blockchain because seriously, when people start talking about it on television, they sound like the adults used to sound on those Charlie Brown specials. Womp, 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 womp. So I'll be taking a few LinkedIn learning courses to try to understand better about what's blockchain and what's Bitcoin and what's cryptocurrency. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of other crazy-ass social media stuff that's going on in Texas. And let me start by saying I love my nieces more than average auntie. I'm a pink, which is a professional aunt with no kids. My nieces are gorgeous and smart, and I love them more than Bon Jovi and chocolate and my beloved Shih Tzu Simi. Um... Honestly, it's a little close with some of those things. And my oldest niece, Michael, she would say that I love Bon Jovi more than them because I missed her 30th birthday party extravaganza last month because I had floor seats to Bon Jovi. I love you, Tootie. But anyway, what prompted me to discuss this issue is that one of my nieces, the youngest, Kelby, she called me all upset because filters were gone on Instagram. Now, Like I said, my nieces are gorgeous, and they really have no need to use filters to make themselves pretty, but they really love using filters. And seriously, I have seen some of their selfie photo shoots, and honestly, Kelby is the reason that I know how to use my MacBook and Apple Watch to take selfies on my phone while I pose across the room, so thank you for that. Um, But unfortunately, I still have not figured out how to use filters And I probably need to take a tutorial, maybe a LinkedIn learning exists on that too. But anyway, Kelby had heard that there was a law passed in Texas that banned filters, that banned filters. Now, Kelby is pursuing a career in acting and she has over 8,000 followers on her Instagram. Her Insta name is Kelby Rose, K-E-L-B-I-R-O-S-E. And she is serious about her Instagram. She has to maintain, maintain it for her career. So to say that she was pissed about the loss of filters was an understatement. And honestly, I was confused and I was sure that she was just confused and she was getting news off of TikTok that was wrong. And I kind of brushed her off because why ban filters? It makes no sense. Anyway, I owe Kelby an apology. I'm sorry, because Texas is doing some really crazy shit right now. However, people have mistakenly mixed up a recently enacted Texas law with a current federal case. And so I'm going to break it down for you in the simplest of terms and explain to you what's actually happening in Texas. 
So last year, Texas passed a law that prohibited large social media companies from censoring users based on their viewpoints. Sort of like that whole Florida bullshit. But let's be clear. HB 20, that bill that prohibits social media companies from censoring users based on viewpoint viewpoints, it's separate from a lawsuit filed by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He filed a lawsuit against Facebook and Instagram's parent company, Meta. Um, and we're going to come back to the lawsuit in a minute. So, But first, we're going to talk about the law that was passed a year ago in Texas um, that would prohibit social media companies from deplatforming and blocking social media users and posts like Donald Trump and David Duke and Mila Yiannopoulos. See, you kind of forgot about him because he's racist, pedophile, loving. He's all sorts of weird. Anyway, when the law was passed um, a year ago, a federal judge immediately blocked it from taking effect. However, on Wednesday of last week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned that that, um, stay and the law went immediately into effect. Now, this law, HB 20, would compel platforms to disseminate all sorts of objectionable viewpoints, like Russia's propaganda claim that its invasion of Ukraine is justified, Um, ISIS propaganda claiming that extremism is warranted and okay, neo-Nazi or KKK screeds denying or supporting the Holocaust, and all of that would be okay because those viewpoints can't be blocked, according to HB 20. And it would also, you'd be allowed to encourage children to engage in risky or unhealthy behaviors like eating disorders or eating fucking Tide Pods. So social media companies can take down those things now. But according to HB 20, they couldn't because that's viewpoint discrimination which isn't their intended effect because they just want to protect their right to say crazy shit, not um, ISIS's propaganda or to say crazy shit. But anyway, HB 20 also imposes some really burdensome um, requirements like disclosure requirements, and it's designed to chill speech. So under the law, social media companies have to issue reports every six months to the state of Texas, explaining how many posts they removed, how many posts were deprioritized, demonetized, or suspended, and why. It also requires that social media platforms provide an easily accessible complaint system, and it allows for both the state of Texas and individuals to sue companies that violate the law by, I'm doing air quotes here, censoring users, because remember, First Amendment doesn't apply, um, individuals would then be able to ask for damages up to $25,000 for each day their messages are unlawfully impeded. Now, did you listen to last week's episode where I discussed the First Amendment and social media companies? This is basically a continuation of that discussion. So per Politico, conservative proponents of the law say it is necessary to combat what they say is censorship by social media companies, while progressive critics say that the platforms have the constitutionally protected right to make content moderation decisions without government intervention. Personally, 
those that say it's censorship by social media companies are full of shit. So remember how a few minutes ago I told you that federal judge in California told Trump about his Twitter lawsuit, um, how it was a private company? So let me say it again for the people in the back of the room. Social media companies are private platforms, and you agree to those terms and conditions to use their platform. The First Amendment does not apply because the government is not regulating speech. Social media companies are private entities that are requiring users to report things that are truthful and not a place to start a coup to take over the U.S. government and hang the vice president on the steps of the fucking U.S. Capitol. They don't have to let everyone come to their sites and say whatever the fuck they want. You are entitled to your opinions. Social media companies are not obligated to give you a form to share those opinions. Now, Justice Samuel Alito has the option to issue an emergency stay because this is being appealed from the Fifth Circuit, which released that stay and allowed the law to go into effect. And it's on the Supreme Court's um, shadow docket. Now, the lawsuit is still pending um, because they haven't ruled on the merits of the case, like the actual fact of whether or not the law is constitutional or unconstitutional. So right now, the they're just trying to get a stay to stop Texas from enforcing this law. So the question before Alito is whether the Texas law will remain in force until the appeal is decided or whether the December injunction against the law will be allowed to stand until the Fifth Circuit issues a decision about the merits. So that's the law that people are talking about in Texas. It just so happened to go into effect during the middle of litigation between Texas and Meta. And remember, Meta is the parent company of Facebook and Instagram. So before we dive right in to talk about what that lawsuit is about, let's hear a statement from Meta. So this is their statement. The technology we use to power augmented reality effects like masks, avatars, and filters is not facial recognition or any technology covered by the Texas and this, Illinois laws and is not used to identify anyone. Nevertheless, we are taking this step to prevent meritless and distracting litigation under laws in these two states based on a mischaracterization of how our features work. So remember how you would post a picture on Facebook and they would look through their database to see if they recognize the people in the picture and then ask you to tag them? Now, that was a creepy as hell feature, and but... Honestly, if you're overly concerned about privacy, then you're not posting your life story on social media and you're not on social media if you're really concerned about privacy. So it's not just Texas, it's Illinois that actually has lost access to filters. So here's a quick rundown of what happened in Texas and Illinois. So Illinois started it first. Back in 2008, lawmakers in Illinois passed the Biometric Information Privacy Act, BIPA, BIPA, whatever you want to call it. It prohibited anyone from collecting, buying, or selling the biometric information of others without their knowledge and consent. So then in 2009, Texas passed a similar law called SCUB. It's the Capture or Use of Biometric Identifier Act, and it was the same thing as the Illinois law. 
So in 2010, Facebook announced that it was using facial recognition software originally in the context of photo tagging and that tag suggestions. So that weird ass feature that we that kind of scared everybody, but it didn't stop you from using Facebook. So anyway, in 2015, a small group of Illinois residents sued Facebook in what eventually became a class action lawsuit, alleging the company had breached their privacy rights by gathering and keeping digital scans of their faces without their knowledge or consent. And in 2018, Facebook settled the lawsuit with Illinois uh, in that class action, and it was finalized in February of last year, 2021. And then in November 2021, Facebook announced that it would be shutting down its facial recognition program. So that's a little bit of a quick history. Now, in Texas, the Attorney General Paxton, he's asked the court to order Meta not to use facial recognition on its apps, delete existing data gathered from facial recognition programs, and then pay $25,000 for each violation of the Texas of the Texas law, QB. So Meta said bullshit and claimed that QB itself is unconstitutional and the court should dismiss Paxton's lawsuit. Now, Meta is super angry and decided to flex their muscles in Texas during the election year. So maybe they thought cutting off Filters would motivate millennials and Gen Zers to contact their representatives and vote, but we'll see how it goes. So for the time being, Texas and Illinois, you do not have access to filters on Instagram and Facebook. I still don't know how to use filters, but I'm in Tennessee, so I can. And then Texas still has that separate law that has gone into effect that would require social media companies to not deplatform people and then report on every single person that is deplatformed or has a tweet scrubbed or is giving a warning on a tweet and why. So all of that is still going on. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see what happens. But there's another issue out there that should motivate people and send them to the polls. And you know where I'm going. I'm still on the overturning of Roe versus Wade by this case Dobbs out of Mississippi. So before we hop right into Dobbs, um, let's talk about Senator Susan Collins of Maine. So Susan Collins is a Republican senator that is allegedly pro-life, and I'm rolling my eyes because she voted for Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch. And now she's all up in arms because she feels like they lied to her when they said that Roe was settled law. Everybody else knew they were lying when they said that shit. I don't know why she thought she was different. But anyway, um, Senator Susan Collins is a Karen, meaning she pulled some real Karen shit and called the police because some protesters left, and I'm doing air quotes here, a threatening message in front of her home and defaced public property. Dude, some women used sidewalk chuck on the sidewalk and wrote the following. Susie, please. Mainers want the WHPA. Vote yes. Clean up your mess. So the WHPA is the Women's Health Protection Act um, that Susan voted against this week, by the way. Um, So, and clean up your mess refers to voting for 
Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch. Um, I don't know if it was the Susie Please or Clean Up Your Mess, but whatever it was, she went full Karen. And first, her office tried to say that it was her husband that called the police because they realized this was some Karen shit. So the police report has confirmed that it was Susan Collins being a Karen and calling a non-emergency number, but still calling the police about sidewalk chalk. The police report even described the chalk manifesto as intricately drawn and in multiple different colors. Really, it was actually a well-done statement. And um, Karen, I mean, Susan, even had the Bangor, Maine Public Works Department power wash away this alleged threatening chalk message. Needless to say, um, the delinquents who did this, they've been coming back and redoing the chalk message every time it's removed. And on my website, in the simplest of terms.com, I've included a link to the scary ass chalk message uh, news story, and it includes an interview with the delinquents that left some really tasteful chalk art that said, Susie, please clean up your mess, not die, bitch, die, like she made it seem like. So anyway, um, that's happening in Maine. And people are also protesting outside of the Supreme Court justices' homes. And it's really funny because Republicans are all up in arms and saying these what our peaceful protesters have crossed the line. Now, some Republicans are saying really stupid shit because these are the same people that were apparently okay with the January 6th protesters smearing shit on the wall of the U.S. Capitol. I mean, literally, there was shit smeared on the walls of the U.S. Capitol and blood and urine And they were ransacking representative offices and they hung a fucking noose outside for Mike Pence, assaulted police officers, but they're okay. But some women dressing like out of the handmaid's tail and silently standing in front of Justice Amy Coney Barrett's house is a bridge too fucking far. Please. Too bad you can't see me rolling my eyes right now because that is stupid as hell. As long as they're peacefully protesting and not shitting on the justices' lawns, I see no problem. So some lawmakers, Tom Cotton, have had the nerve to say that they should be arrested. And what's really funny to me is some of them are saying there should be a buffer zone around the houses of elected officials and justices to protect them from protesters. So a buffer zone just wouldn't stand up because that goes back to 2014 when the Supreme Court struck down a Massachusetts law mandating a 35-foot buffer zone around clinics that provide abortion services. That case was McCullen versus Coakley. And in it, the justices suggest alternatives for helping clinics protect their patients and staff from harassment. You know, so there are alternatives too for the justices to protect themselves and families from what what is a protest that is being peacefully done on a street and on the sidewalk, not on their property. 
But anyway, in that court case, the Supreme Court said that Massachusetts could emulate New York and make it a crime to follow and harass another person within 15 feet of the premises of a reproductive health care facility. They also said Massachusetts could adopt a law that makes it illegal to attempt to injure intimidate or interfere with anyone because they're either coming from or heading toward a health clinic. In other words, the protesters in front of their houses are fine as long as they're on the sidewalks and not in their yards. Again, I wish you could see me rolling my eyes. So I'm passionate about certain things. And like I've said before, the courts are what drives me to vote. And What happens in the courts affects everything. And I'm trying to break down the news for you in the simplest terms. But like I said, this is coming from my viewpoint and my beliefs, just like any story that's covered by the media, whether it's Fox News or some other crazy conservative OAN, or if it's something like Huffington Post or even TMZ. They pick stories based on the stories to discuss based on their beliefs or based on what they think their people want to hear about. I do the same. So there is no such thing as news that is um, completely ambivalent to either side because you pick that story because you thought that's what your listeners wanted to hear or if you pick that story because that's an issue that your listeners are interested in. I pick stories based on what I'm interested in and what I know my friends who are usually like-minded want to talk about. So that's why I talk about the things that I do. And like I said last week, I've never had to have an abortion, but I know lots of people that have. And so this is an issue that I care about because it's about body autom- autonomy for women as well as safety for women. So if you think back to my last episode, I discussed some of the cases that Alito and the other justices have a problem with in the Dobbs draft opinion. Because basically, Alito has an issue with a lot of cases. And if this case, like once Roe is overturned, he wants to go back and look at other cases and overturning Roe would mean a loss of access to abortion services. But some of the other cases mentioned like Griswold, that means the threat of a loss of access to birth control and Loving versus Virginia wasn't explicitly mentioned, but it's in that same era. And that would be the end of interracial marriage. And he specifically brought up Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell versus Hodges. That's the potential recriminalization of homosexuality in Lawrence and the end of gay marriage in Obergefell. So this opinion is having an issue with modern-day civil rights cases. So anything post-civil rights era dealing with black and white in the 60s. So everything dealing with women and the LGBTQ community would potentially be adversely affected by this court's stance on Roe being overturned. Because if they're willing to overturn Roe, in that draft opinion, Alito specifically calls out 
Lawrence and Obergefell. And let's be clear. So there have been court opinions that were leaked, not drafts, but like court opinions. So the ruling and the original Roe versus Wade ruling, it was released that it was going to be uphold the right to an abortion. Um, conservatives were up in arms because um, the Obamacare leaked out ahead of time that it was going to be upheld. But this is just the leakiest damn court and like what appears to be the history of the court. Because normally the Supreme Court keeps their deliberations and discussions locked down real tight. However, we now know through leaks, um, another leak through Politico, that there are no other drafts of the Dobbs decision that would overturn Roe. So one of the things that kept me going last week was, hey, this is just the first draft. So there are other drafts that wouldn't explicitly call out all of these other, these other cases. Um, apparently, that's not true. And that's hella disturbing because this draft is absolutely horrible in that it calls out other civil rights cases. And then it's also packed with factually incorrect information. When it comes to some of the statistics on the left about how abortion impacts women's lives. So get ready. I'm about to throw out some more facts and stats. All right. You ready? You ready? So abortion rights have improved women's ability to attain higher education. They've led to lifetime increases of a woman's earnings. And they've also given women more long-term financial stability. Per Huffington Post, yes, of course, I read Huffington Post. It's a great aggregator of news stories. Um, there was an amicus brief filed in the Dobbs case. An amicus brief is called, it's basically a friend of the court brief. And it's filed by one side that they're supporting one side or the other. So a group of 154 economists and researchers filed a brief um, supporting the right to have an abortion after 15 weeks in Mississippi. And in their brief, they provided a lot of stats which look at how restrictions on abortion would impact women negatively. And the court is basically apparently willing to overlook these gains and turn back the clock. So, Huffington Post also goes on to say that while abortion is framed as a culture war issue, it is not. Abortion is access to abortion is actually an economic issue. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe next month, and more than likely they will, somewhere between 23 and 26 states are certain or likely to ban abortion immediately. I think it's 23 that will ban them immediately, and three others have something in the works, um, including. Be, uh, laws that have been on the books since like the early 1900s, because that makes sense, really. So that means millions of women across the country will no longer have access to abortion services that provided women these material economic gains and opportunities over the past 49 years since Roe was um, decided by the court. This will fall heaviest on the poorest and most economically at-risk women and their children, so prim primarily um, African-Americans, Latinos, and poor white women. So, here we go. In that brief by the 154 economists and researchers, they talk about how studies show that in addition to impacting births, abortion legislation has had a significant impact on women's wages 
and educational attainment, which with impacts most strongly felt by, by Black women. Sorry. Black teenage women who had access to abortion services graduated from high school at a rate of 22% to 24% more and attended college by 23% to 27% more than other Black teenage women who could not access these services. And that's according to a 1996 research paper by economists Joshua Angris and William Evans. So, Economist Ali Abbott's 2019 study shows that young women who delayed having a child by one year by having an abortion eventually saw an 11% increase in hourly wages. Now, the probability of graduating from college increased by nearly 20%, and the probability of entering a professional field increased by 40%, for young women who had an abortion after an unattended pregnancy. That's according to a 2021 study by economist Kelly Jones. Also, on average, young women who have an abortion after an unattended pregnancy before the age of 20 increased their earnings later in life by $11,000 to $15,000 per year. Now, that's all women. The gains for Black women were even more pronounced. Young Black women who have an abortion after an unintended pregnancy from ages 15 to 23 saw their individual earnings increase by $23,200 to $28,000 per year. Their family earnings increased by $48,000 to $52,000 per year. Now, a different study, the Turnaway Study, it shows that the average woman who, is, who was turned away from receiving an abortion saw a 78% increase in past due debt and an 81% increase in public records related to bankruptcies, evictions, and court judgments. And let's be clear, contraceptives are easily available for those that are insured. So when people say, well, this is a consequence of their action, they just should have used birth control, not everybody has access to birth control. So for example, the average annual cost for birth control pills for the uninsured is $268. That's the average, plus $87 in related doctor's visits. Implantable devices like the IUD, They cost approximately $1,000 upfront for the uninsured in addition to the charges for the doctor. Nationally, 15.6% of young adults aged 19 to 34 lack health insurance. And in Mississippi, 25% of young adults lack a health insurance. So large numbers of women, particularly young and poor women, encounter steep barriers to contraceptive affordability and accessibility. Therefore, Mississippi's suggestion that the United States, because this is what they argued in the brief, um, the United States has universal no-cost access to contraception is just wrong. Seriously, that's what they had the nerve to put in the brief, that there is universal no-cost access to contraception. Where? Because it's not in the U.S. because not everybody has health insurance. That's just stupid as hell. Anyway, you have to also take into account No contraceptive method is 100% effective. And even with widespread contraceptive use of all forms, about 6% of all women aged 15 to 34 in the United States are likely to experience an unattended pregnancy each year. So 
While scores of countries, including like Bulgaria and Latvia, offer more than a year of paid leave to new mothers, the United States provides for only 12 weeks of unpaid leave under the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993. So everybody knows that as FMLA. But let's be clear, not everybody is covered by FMLA. Half of all of the working women in the U.S. are not covered by the Family Medical Leave Act due to various exemptions. So while a handful of states, literally a handful, have enacted paid leave policies since the FMLA, and some employers are voluntarily offering paid parental leave, evidence from a large national survey indicates that 81% of workers lack formal paid leave. Not just maternity leave, but all leave. The real inflation-adjusted price of childcare has also increased by nearly 50% to 1993 to a median price of $10,400 a year for infants and $6,500 a year for four-year-olds. Thus, a hypothetical mother working full-time and making a $15 per hour minimum wage, which is more than double the federal minimum wage, faces infant child care costs that are total one-third of their gross pay. And honestly, that's looking at the low end. Many people are paying approximately $250 a week for infant child care, putting them closer to $13,400 per year. Affordability is not the only barrier to child care access. Working mothers also deal with schedules that are erratic or misaligned with daycare hours. For instance, a recent survey of workers in the food service and retail industries, which together employ nearly one in five American workers, indicate that 80% have little to no input on their work schedules. 66% receive less than two weeks' notice of their schedules. 69% are required to keep their schedules open and available. And 70% report being asked to make at least one change to their schedules within the last month. These unstable and unpredictable work schedules create a significant barrier to securing reliable childcare. So, about 250,000 pregnant women are denied accommodations each year related to their pregnancies, which should be covered under the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. So basically, that act is no deterrent, contrary to what Mississippi argued in its brief. So many women, if pregnant while interviewing for new jobs, don't even tell interviewers they're pregnant. Why, you ask? Because employers aren't likely to hire a pregnant woman because she's going to need to take time off of work. So, breathe. I have talked about a lot this week. I talked about Trump's return to Twitter and his dreams being dashed through his lawsuit and then being revived. Um, Elon Musk is playing games and messing with the stock market again by saying that he's putting the deal on hold Then I talked about Ukraine and Russia and NATO and the crazy pants social media shit going on in Texas and Illinois and abortion. So the Supreme Court overruling Roe. And I say potentially we all know it's going to happen. So what was the point of me discussing what appears to be like random stories in the news? It's the consequences of inaction. So when people don't vote 
or pay attention to what's going on in the world, they are frequently forced to deal with the consequences of their inaction. By then, it's usually too late and they start bitching about what happened, but they don't take the time to stop and think about what part they played in it or their lack of participation in the process. Um, So therefore, it's all sorts of screwed up when you don't take action. So if you sit on the sidelines, shit happens just the same. You just fail to take a position or you fail to vote. So Twitter's delayed reaction to all of the hateful shit that Trump was spewing for years on their site led to a dumbass lawsuit by Trump against Twitter, which led to someone like Musk being able to step up to try to buy Twitter. The SEC's inaction has let Musk play games with the value of his stocks and the value of uh, Twitter stocks by tweeting. So the world's lack of action when Russia invaded Georgia during the 2008 Olympics led to the Russian invasion of Crimea and now the current war in Crimea. Nobody did anything. Texas voters in action led to this dumbass social media law and lack of filters on Facebook and Instagram. Seriously, the attorney general of Texas is under federal indictment for securities fraud. By the way, he was reelected after the indictment. Also, damn near his entire staff reported him to the authorities, the federal authorities for bribery, abuse of office, and a host of whole other shit. I mean, it's a lot. Um, And he's still there. Again, voter in action. And finally, the Supreme Court. Like I said last week, to all of those people that said Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were exactly alike, fuck you. Um, Hillary Clinton would never have appointed three justices that had been waiting for the opportunity to overturn Roe and roll back women's body autonomy rights and privacy rights. What my point is this, inaction leads to consequences, and we are dealing with the aftermath of voter inaction and apathy. Well, I guess that took somewhat of a depressing turn. All right. So breathe, breathe, breathe. Okay. So thank you again for joining me this week. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about mass shootings. That's another depressing topic. But look, I'm a gun owner. I love going to the range. Um, However, we have to do something about the gun violence in our country. I'm also going to talk about student loan forgiveness and why it's important. So please send me DMs about why you support or do not support student loan forgiveness. Please feel free to share your stories and I will not mention any names, but I will be talking about my excessive debt that is not a mortgage. So again, thank you for joining me. If you have any topics you'd like me to discuss, send me a message on my website in the simplestofterms.com. You can also find in the simplest of terms on Twitter for now and Facebook, and you can submit questions and topics there as well. Don't forget, me and my podcast are works in progress. I'm constantly learning and evolving just like my podcast will with time. And I'm really looking forward to us breaking down news and current events in the simplest of terms so we can all get informed, speak up, and speak out.